Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the February 2023 edition of Outbeat News In-Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, if Valentine's Day this year left you alone and looking for love, our first guest tonight is someone you should meet. Tammy Shackley is a professional matchmaker specializing exclusively in helping LGBTQ plus people find their next partner. She's working with clients of all ages and says it's never too late to look for that someone special. And in the second half of our hour, we'll meet John Rosa. He's a local gay man who's riding for the first time in this year's AIDS Life Cycle Ride. He's hoping to raise some of the millions of dollars this event collects each year to help end the HIV AIDS epidemic. So stay with us. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, February 26th, 2023. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of February 26th, 2023. A man has been convicted of federal hate crimes and firearms charges after going on a self-described mission to kill all of the LGBTQ plus people in his Montana hometown. 46-year-old John Russell Hallfield fired what the Department of Justice said was an AK-47 style assault rifle at the home of a lesbian in his town of Basin back on March 22nd of 2020. The woman was not harmed even though Hoffield fired multiple rounds while carrying two pistols and three rifles. According to the Department of Justice, after firing at the woman's home, Hoffield continued down the street, determined to kill all of the LGBTQ plus people in his town. Nearby church service had let out around the same time, and those exiting, including the pastor, tried to talk Howell down. The pastor unknowingly recorded the entire situation with the device he was using to capture his sermons. On the recording, Howell reportedly said that he hopes he just killed the lesbian and that he plans to get rid of the rest of the town's LGBTQ community. He also fired a weapon multiple times while the people tried to calm him down. Howell also refused to drop his weapons when sheriff's deputies arrived and ordered him to do so. He fled the scene on foot while continuing to fire his weapons. He was arrested the following day and now faces the possibility of life in prison. According to the Flathead Beacon, he's already serving a 10-year sentence on state charges of criminal endangerment for the same crime. U.S. Attorney for the District of Montana, Jess Lasevich, in a statement said, quote, The victim in this case was targeted by the defendant for no other reason than her sexual orientation when he fired bullets at her home while she was inside. There will be zero tolerance by our office in prosecuting those who commit hate crimes against our fellow Montanans. And here in California, two California lawmakers have introduced a bill to protect marriage equality in the state should the Supreme Court overturn Obergefell versus Hodges. This is the decision that legalized marriage equality nationwide back in 2015. While the state is especially known for being LGBTQ plus inclusive, an amendment banning same-sex marriage still remains in California's state constitution. In 2008, voters in California passed a ballot initiative called Proposition 8 that banned same-sex couples from getting married. Assembly members Evan Lowe and State Senator Scott Weiner proposed a bill to abolish that amendment. Senator Weiner told the Associated Press, quote, It's absolute poison. It's so destructive and it's humiliating that this is still in our Constitution, end quote. The bill to abolish Proposition 8 requires a two-thirds vote in the legislature and then a vote by the people. The initiative could appear on the ballot in November of 2024. And Shelby Chestnut, a transgender two-spirit queer person, has begun their tenure as the executive director of the Transgender Law Center. This is the largest trans-led civil rights organization in the United States. 
Chestnut told the Bay Area Reporter that they're super excited and super humbled that they get to take on the Transgender Law Center into the next chapter of its work. The center began as a project of the National Center for Lesbian Rights back in 2002. It became its own nonprofit in 2004. And while the organization is now based in Oakland, Chestnut is based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Chestnut, who's 42, is no stranger to activism and community organizing, having previously served five years as the director of policy and programs for the Transgender Law Center. Chestnut has also served as director of community organizing and public advocacy at the New York City Anti-Violence Project, where they were part of a coalition that worked on passing and implementing the Violence Against Women Act and police reform legislation in the city. Chestnut took over for Chris Hayashi, a trans man who called Chestnut, quote, a proven leader with knowledge, experience, and a vision to meet the current moment of overlapping crises in our communities. Amara Jones, who is the board chair for the Transgender Law Center, described Chestnut's leadership as, quote, exactly what we need to help meet this moment. And finally, Vallejo's new gay city council member is aiming to address teen smoking in his town. The effort is particularly focused on reducing the number of LGBTQ youth who use tobacco products. Pete Bregenzer won election last November to the council's 5th district seat. He's the second out member of the governing body and the first elected since the departure of gay former city council member Gary Cloucher 16 years ago. Bregenzer is working with a group LGBTQ plus minus tobacco to bring forward new rules for the city council to adopt that would raise the minimum age for tobacco products sold in Vallejo. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. In the 1970s, when the gay bars all opened up and people were free to gather in public with less fear of being arrested, you could meet other gay people like you. Technology then came along and gave us chat rooms like the ones in AOL and today dating apps where you can swipe right or swipe left. Now, you may think that professional matchmakers only work with straight couples, but our first guest tonight has made a business out of working exclusively with LGBT clients. Tammy Shackley runs H4M, and she's here to share some advice for us on dating and how to stay safe while searching for love. Tammy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to inspire some singles today. Yeah, it's great. I mean, this is the month of love, right? With Valentine's Day, though, uh, it's past. Uh, but I think it's still worth talking about, uh, you know, how to find that love of your life, how to find that person. But before I we... think every, every month is the month for love. We don't have to narrow it down to February. That's a Hallmark holiday, some say. <laughs> and I would agree. I would agree. Before we get talking about the business and how to find that someone special. Uh, tell us about your background and how you got into the matchmaking business. Exactly. I am a straight ally and I had been divorced, no kids, ready to start my next chapter of my life. I'd moved, had a new career in philanthropy and things were going great. I could get a date, but I wasn't finding the caliber I was seeking. So I hired an offline personal matchmaker. It's how I met my husband. I had a positive experience. And years later, I was trying to refer a gay friend to the same matchmaker. When I was told, and this was 12 years ago, that we don't serve gay singles. And I thought, well, why not? You know, marriage equality is coming. Why is the industry not preparing to match gay and lesbian singles, for example? So I started a feasibility study research focus group interviews, and I designed 
a gay and lesbian matchmaking company, and I've been matching only LGBTQ singles coast to coast for 10 years. Wow. Wow. That's really impressive. Uh, gosh, I'm thinking back to the seventies, you know, when the, the gay bar was really emerging as the place, it was finally a place where people could gather and not have to worry about, you know, police raiding and, and that type of thing. But that was the place to go to meet people. You could see them face to face. You could talk to people and decide then if you wanted to go home or meet up later on. And then, you know, sort of technology came on and now, you know, some professional services. Why isn't the gay bar the best place to meet? Well, I'll tell you, I've been to the Stonewall, by the way. I, when I travel, I try to engage in the community, not usually in bars, but through advocacy. And I'll tell you, I think technology prepared us for a pandemic. You know, imagine if we didn't have the technology when shelter in place happened. But now, post-pandemic, so to speak, you know, so many businesses did not open back up or certain areas of the country really grew to where there's traffic, it's, it's more segmented. So to me, what used to be an easy place to meet the bars is now a secondary option, maybe, if you're online. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you want to meet in real life. But the bars aren't always the place to do it. The other thing, too, you and I may have been in high school together. Um, as we age, some of my older singles will tell me, I don't feel like I, I belong there anymore, that I've kind of aged out of that. Especially if you live in a college town like Austin, Texas, where we're based out of. Or if you just have had a long-term partner and now you don't feel like that young flirty single anymore. My youngest clients are 23, but my oldest is 82. And so I think we change and the way we want to meet changes as we mature. Sure. I, I love that age range, 23 to 82. <laughs> exactly. I think you can find love at any age. One of my singles called in one day and she was just so excited to talk to me and and I said, well, where is this enthusiasm coming from? And she said, I just talked to mother and daddy. They're 99, 98. They still live independently. I'm 66. What am I waiting for? I'm ready for the love of my life, you know, in this chapter. And I thought that inspired even me. It's all perspective, right? Age is just a number. Yeah. And you still have time for love, whatever age you are. Sure. Oh, yeah, that's great. That's great. You know, I think the other thing for me about bars, uh, and I and I agree with what you said about being of a of a generation perhaps that's aged out of the bars. I've never been a big drinker. In fact, I don't drink at all anymore now. And so, you know, not that you have to drink alcohol when you go to a bar to have a good time, but let's face it, that's that's part of that whole culture. And I think the alcohol also, I don't know, impairs your judgment. Uh, and there are some maybe some inhibitions that you get released with alcohol, but the loud music makes it difficult to talk to people. And so how do you really truly get to know someone in a bar setting before you decide if you want to go out on a date with them? I, I think there's opportunity to meet, but then it's taking the next step. Sometimes I tease my, <laughs> my gay bachelors. I said, you know, I'm just observing here. I've been doing this for 10 years, but gay men are not always so great at follow-up. So you may see someone you're interested in and say, oh, gosh, let's get together later this week and grab a coffee or meet for a light lunch. Oh, yeah, 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 let's do. 
and then you never do because neither one of you takes the initiative someone has to take the lead on reaching out and then you'll run into each other a month later and realize wow we never did that we never got together so i always coach both singles when that um you know encounter occurs to get each other's contact information make a point to follow up the next day and pin it down propose a date time location it allows the other person to say Thursday doesn't really work for me, but I love that place. Let's go on Friday. And so it allows you to volley back and forth until you meet in real life. So take the initiative, follow up with that person you've been meaning to grab a cup of coffee with, or you know, go check out the new gallery that's open. Maybe you missed the grand opening, but you can grab a coffee and walk there. So take the initiative to propose a date, time, location. Great advice. So you, let's talk about technology for a bit. I mean, uh, certainly there was AOL chat rooms. Uh, Gay.com is where I met my husband at. And this is, I'm really dating myself with that. Uh, but now there's Grinder and Scruff and, you know, probably a dozen others that I'm not even fully aware of. Why aren't those yeah, great I, options? I would, I would say there's certainly an option, but there's also a strategy. So let's say you go on Match.com that's broader, or you go to a more specified one like Grindr or Scruff. The point is these tech companies were started as introduction sites. Your goal should be to to identify someone, banter back and forth, make a point to meet in real life, or at least on video, and do it quickly within two weeks. And that's going to be shocking to some folks because it's comfortable to chat and not really propose meeting on video. But it's the only way to guarantee you're talking to a real person who has real potential that, you know, you've got to find out that they're not married, they really are gay or lesbian, whatever it is you're seeking. And the best way to do that is to video within two weeks. If they aren't accommodating, then move on because they're either not serious, they're not relationship ready, or they may not even be gay. They, they could be, you know, some type of uh, person trying to take advantage. I've heard stories, and I'm sure you have too. Of course. Yeah, I mean, we've covered a bunch of stories on Outbeat News about people who have been victimized. Set up, if you will, on Grinder or Scruff, any of those, and, um, and hurt. It's not good. Right. Uh, so grinder and scruff, sort of that swipe right or swipe left approach. Then there's match.com, Christian mingle and, and others that take a more, I don't know, algorithmic approach to, to meeting people. Uh, but I don't know that those apps or those services were necessarily targeted for LGBT folks. In fact, I've heard about some outright discrimination where, you know, if you're gay or lesbian, they don't want anything to do with you. Has that been your experience? That has. It's come a long way in the last 10 years that I've been involved in the industry because we're one industry, we're dating industry, but we're two different worlds because the tech, and this is me in my opinion, but the tech companies are designed to keep engaged users. They want you coming back, coming back for that dopamine rush, so to speak. Whereas offline personal matchmakers, their goal is to get you engaged (laughs) if that's what you're seeking and to close the books on your file and to close your account 
because they've been successful in introducing you. But as a single, if you know that, you keep it all, you keep it in perspective. That I call them straight companies. They're designed for straight. And I'll mention one, for example, like Talkify. I know they advertise a lot in California. You know, last I checked, their database was more probably 70% straight women, 30% straight men. Well, keep that in mind if you're interested in their service. And so to really find the niche service that attracts like-minded people is probably what you're looking for. That's what Christian Mingle is. Even, you know, there's there's Jot, you know, there's, there's gym-related apps for gay singles too. And so, you know, sometimes those niche services can work, but again, you still have to treat it like an introduction service. Meet the person online, do a video to find out that they're real, and then meet them in real life. And do all of that within a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. I've talked to so many singles that were having so much fun chatting with what they thought was a real potential guy for six months and never met in person. You know, you've wasted a lot of time. Hmm. You know, it, it strikes me that men and women have maybe some different approaches to this. Uh, what have you found with working with gay men and lesbians in terms of their approach to finding a partner? Is there as much difference as I think there is? There absolutely is. And I was objective in going into my research. So with my one-on-one -on -one focus group interviews with gay men, for three and a half months, we really narrowed down what traditional introductions, courting, and dating should look like if I'm going to introduce gay men singles who are serious about a committed long-term relationship. Well, when I interviewed the women, totally different experience. Hmm. With women, we were encouraging them to slow down, that a first date for both should be no more than two drinks, no more than two hours, keeping the conversation light, and then walking away. And, and, you know, think about it. Did you enjoy this person? Did you enjoy their company? Did they seem interested in you? Did they seem interesting? And then let's decide on a second date. So you're right. I did find with the women that they could go to lunch for five hours. And that's <laughs> not really what a first date should feel like. It should feel really lighthearted and wanting to pick up where you left off. And with the men, we encourage them, you know, two hours is a hard stop. Uh, let's walk away. Let's really think about this person you've met. And then let's see if it leads to a second date. Interesting. Very interesting. All right. So we've given up on Match.com, Christian Mingle, Grinder, Scruff, and we're going to go to a professional like you. Uh, talk us through the process. What, what are the right. steps involved in, in getting set up and casting the line? Thank you for asking, because I, I, I want to um, unveil the mystery behind matchmaking. Matchmaking is simply a certified matchmaker connecting with you as a human, interviewing you. So we, too, start with a phone call to make sure you're a real person, start learning about us. And then after our initial phone call, we'll schedule a complimentary Zoom interview. It's about an hour and a half. And it's not recorded. It's just a conversation between the matchmaker and the single. And in my approach, I'm a former broadcast journalist. I really like to get to know your human interest story. 
So the questions are all about you at first. We'll talk about friends, family, background, past relationships. And then at the end, we talk about the ideal partner for you moving forward. And at the end of that interview, we will know whether we're a good match. That if I feel like I can be successful in introducing you, then let's talk about becoming a client. Or if what you're seeking is so specified, uh, we'll talk a little bit about some unlimited dating coaching, maybe opening up or broadening your boundaries or expectations. And then we'll talk about maybe let's do some homework and talk about becoming a client in a month or so. So I'm very authentic if I think you have some things to work on, maybe some blocking of bringing this person into your life. Um, but ideally, you're relationship ready. We'll talk about becoming a client and your first match is usually in two to three weeks. Wow. That, that yeah. fast. Should someone go out and get some professional headshots for use with your service or anything else they decide to do online? It's good for the ego, but we don't require it. We do not show photos, believe it or not. So it really is like the opposite of the algorithms. You know, I, I think even in some still say same-sex matching, just because two men play tennis does not mean that you're compatible. Right. And if your geography is so limited, you probably have already met. And so we broaden the scope to say, you know, really a compatible partner for you may still live in LA, but looking for their second place in Sonoma or even Palm Springs. And so we look at all the factors that build a compatibility profile, not just that you both play tennis. So to me, the, the headshots are good for your own personal use in that when we introduce two people, we know they'll go look at their Facebook or their Instagram or social media or even their LinkedIn. So to have a fresh photo that's there that even you can use for your, your own social media or online dating, I think it's important to have a fresh photo. Own your age, look as great as you feel, and have those current photos. I think it serves a variety of purposes. Yeah, there's an honesty there too, right? That's super important if you're going to put yourself out there in an authentic way, current photos, be honest about your age, all of that. Uh, how do you go around or go about determining compatibility? It's pretty simple. I think sometimes the tech companies overthink it. Compatibility to me means I'm looking at these two singles. They have a lot of factors that, you know, lifestyle, geography, um, backgrounds. Maybe they were both married and hetero marriages in the past. They both have grown kids. You know, so I look at all of these factors, but it boils down to, do I think these two people are really going to enjoy meeting for a light lunch or drinks and appetizers? Will they enjoy each other's company? Will they walk away wanting to know more? And do I think these two people are likely to choose each other for a second date? And if I think they are, then I tell them about each other. Interesting. So you're looking at it just from, hey, can we create enough connection where there's a possibility of a second date and then you let it go from there? Yes. I mean, if I looked at it and I had a, one of my clients the other day ask me about a particular restaurant owner and I said, well, let me research him a little bit. 
Um, now that you've asked about him, I'll find out some details. Forthright, I mean, very forthright. And I talked to that person to learn he was opening up a location internationally. Well, my client had a fear of flying. And so to me, that's a huge compatibility factor that you have mm -hmm. such a fear of flying, you're never going to get to enjoy that international travel for his next chapter of his career. Mm -hmm. And so that's why compatibility is so much more than a photo. It really is a lifestyle. It's your goals, your aspirations, and do these things align to where you can be supportive of each other? Yeah, yeah. Makes total sense. Total sense. So you talked about the importance of having a video uh, session before meeting. And going back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of the, I don't know, the horrible stories we've heard about dating apps mm -hmm. where people have been victimized. Uh, talk some about what you recommend or how you coach people in terms of proceeding in a way that is safe? Good question. I had a client in California this last year who got into a compromising situation from someone she had met online. And I always, it sounds silly, and you know, our, our elders once taught us, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Mm -hmm. And that was this case. And so, thank goodness, they had not yet met in person, but the other, she quickly figured out this person is fake. Now, what I love that she did is she involved others in the details. So she pulled in her friends and said, here's the situation with this woman I've met online. You know, here's, and she told the different details and it allowed the friends to say, hmm, that sounds a little too good to be true. A little suspicious. Maybe you should ask this. Have they ever been married before? Where do they currently live? What is their zip code? How long have they lived here? Do they have, you know, a U.S. Um, a citizenship or passport? You know, and so it was asking some detailed questions because your friends are protective of you. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would advise you to have that trusted buddy, um, whether they're gay or straight. Sometimes a straight ally can really see through, um, you know, the fogginess of this situation. And so involve someone else to just kind of hear the details as you start to learn about the other person. And the first thing you should ask is, are you married? Have you ever been married? Are you currently married um, or are you divorced? And so just try to find out some details from the get-go. Hmm. And what about that first meeting? Uh, you know, we've talked about this before on our show about some basics, you know, let somebody else know where you're going. Yes. Check in yes. with that person or have some call in time where if you don't hear from them that your friend is going to call for help for you. Anything right. like that? Absolutely. You should meet at a public location. I mean, we, we'd always pick a place for like a late lunch, meaning it's not the crowded time of the day. Mm -hmm. It's kind of winding down. It allows you to listen and hear each other. So you drive yourself or Uber yourself, you meet there and you have a hard stop. And your hard stop is to then go home, whether it's in your own vehicle or to Uber, but not to follow them to another location, not to extend the state, to have a hard stop and walk away. And always let a friend know, you know, I'm meeting them at this restaurant at this time. I should be back home by, you know, two and a half hours from that time. And I'll let you know that I'm back home safely. 
So, uh, and I did, even when I hired a matchmaker, I had one trusted friend and she lived far away. And I would say, you should know I'm having a match at 6.30 at this location. I will ping you when I'm back home. And that's just kind of a buddy system to protect yourself. And I also recommend four good dates before you start to consider this serious. On a first date, anybody can be anybody. But on a second, third, fourth date, when you're meeting safely, you are starting to learn about them, their patterns, and they're learning about you too. So four good dates before you decide that this person could potentially be in your future. So consider what questions you wanna ask on a first date, if it leads to a second, what deeper questions you wanna ask, and by a fourth date, get real and ask all the questions. Sounds great. Sounds great. Let's talk about seniors a bit. Uh, you know, seniors lose a partner and end up becoming single again uh, for the, the last chapter, perhaps, or not, of their life. Uh, what do you recommend? Is there a place in dating? You, you said you've been working with people in their 80s. Yes. What do you, what? I have so many good ideas for you. So note this. Here are some ways that you can be your own matchmaker, so to speak. So everyone, now that the you know our bookstores are back open, the author's coming for a book signing or there's a lecture, go. That's what you're interested in, and that's where you're going to meet like-minded people. So go to a book signing. Go to a lecture at the community college. Um, you'll see some singles mixers or some speed dating opportunities. Visit one once, you know. Uh, they're becoming more popular because people are wanting to get out and meet in real life again. And maybe there is an open house for a new gallery, a new business, a new furniture store. Engage with the Gay Chamber of Commerce. The LGBT Chamber of Commerce was a lifesaver for me in the beginning to, my, to meet other LGBT professionals that were interested in business that would want to hear about my business. Mm -hmm. You do not have to own a business to attend the Gay Chamber. Uh, go as a guest, either one of their monthly lunches or uh, one of their monthly evening mixers. Let's say you're into gardening. Even the nurseries now are having lectures again, or it's going to be spring. We're going to do a workshop about how to, you know, plant your seedlings or whatever it is. And then, of course, if you haven't heard of it, Prime Timers is a great organization for older uh, LGBT men primarily. But I have been a speaker at a couple of their luncheons. And then my favorite is advocacy, whether you're a couple, whether you're single, uh, no matter the age, you know, get involved. Pick uh, one or more of your favorite charities. Maybe it's the AIDS ride. Maybe it's Pride. Maybe it's the Trevor Project. Contact those organizations and say, I'm available to volunteer. Can I work the registration desk at the next mixer? So as a straight ally, it's how I met a lot of eligible singles. I would volunteer for HRC for um, the uh, Pride Festival, and I would work the event because I wanted to meet everyone that attended the registration table. It's a great way to meet people. Hmm. That's great advice. Tammy, where can people go to learn more about your service and get in contact with you? You bet. Our website is h4m.com. That's H, the number four, 
m.com it used to stand for he's for me in the beginning when i was only matching men now i match all of lgbtq but make a, an inquiry let's have a phone call it costs nothing and i'll be glad to give additional advice for you in your area and sometimes talking to a matchmaker uh, can be a little magical as well because it can be inspiring and encouraging Love it. We've been talking with Tammy Shackley from h4m.com. And if you missed that website, we'll have a link on our own website at outbeatnews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page and you can get in contact with Tammy for a consultation. Why not? Right? I mean, you've got nothing not? to lose. Absolutely. I would love to have your call. Fantastic. Thanks so much for spending time with us tonight. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And we'll be right back. I call you when I need you and my heart's on fire You come to me wild and wild You come to me and give me everything I need Give me a lifetime of promises and a world of dreams Speak the language of love like you know what it means And it can't be wrong Take my heart and make it strong, babe You're simply the best Better than all the rest Better than anyone Anyone I've ever met And I'm stuck on your heart I hang on every word you say Or tear us apart Baby, I would rather be dead In your heart I see the start of every night and every day I get lost, I get washed away Just as long as I'm here in your arms I can be in no better place You're simply the best Better than all the rest Better than anyone Anyone I've ever met And I'm stuck on your heart I hang on every word you say Or tear us apart Baby, I'd rather be dead Oh, each time you leave me I start losing control Like you're walking away With my heart and my soul I can feel you, baby Even when I'm alone Baby, don't let go Cause you're simply the best Better than all the rest Better than anyone Anyone I've ever met And I'm stuck on your heartbeat I ain't on every word you say Tear us apart oh, Well I want Red if you dead Woo And if you're just joining us You're listening to Outbeat News in Depth Here on KRCB Radio I'm Greg Moralia The AIDS Life Cycle Ride Debuted first in 1994 As a fundraiser to combat HIV and AIDS Every year, thousands of cycling enthusiasts ride 545 miles from San Francisco to Los Angeles to raise money, hoping to end the epidemic. This year's ride takes off on June 4th, and our next guest is hopping on a bike for this journey for the very first time. John Rosa is a really good friend of mine who I've known for almost 20 years. He took up biking during the COVID-19 pandemic and decided to take on the challenge of this year's AIDS Life Cycle Ride. John, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? 
I'm doing really well and excited to talk with you about your upcoming ride. Uh, but before we get to that, to, for our listeners, I of course, I know you about your background, but uh, for our listeners who don't know you, to talk about a little bit where you grew up and tell us about your coming out story. We always like to hear that. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, let's see. I grew up in the Bay Area, so I'm a uh, Bay Area native. Uh, my, mom was, my mom was from Southern California, and my dad was born here in Oakland. Um, I met my husband uh, during my last year of college. Uh, I went to San Jose State, uh, so I stayed local throughout my, uh, my school and everything. Uh, once I was out of college, we moved to our own apartment in the East Bay. Uh, there was a development of nearby houses. Uh, I think you remember in the, in the mm -hmm. area, you actually came by. Um, and about six months after that, we ended up buying our own house uh, after being together. Um, and uh, it became, you know, uh, it became very apparent that we were co cohabitating, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so to speak. You know, and you're, and you're just new out of college. So things are new and you've got to, you're trying to, the parents are coming by and the friends are coming by and you're living together and you're still in this coming out uh, stage. Well, you're just roommates um, though, right? Well, roommates, yeah, <laughs> you know how it goes. Yeah. Well, and you play, the, you play the game for so long. And then I think after a little while, uh, we ended up actually buying a, uh, upgrading to a second house in the same area that we liked. Finally, I made the decision when we went there. We, in my mind, I, I said, "We're not gonna, we're not gonna play the game anymore. We're not gonna take the pictures off the wall and put the other pictures back up and change our clothes and do everything differently." Uh, so I think I sat down and wrote my parents a letter, um, and I remember spending all night on it and sending to a very late, probably eleven, twelve o'clock at night. Uh, my dad, being the guy that uh, wakes up early. You know, I remember him giving me a phone call at six or six thirty, some ungodly hour, and it was my day off. And he and he said, he says, John, he goes, he goes, we got your we got your email. Mom and I read it. And he goes, we not want we want we don't want to do anything but just be with you right now. And I'm thinking, well, I need mm -hmm. to get out of bed or take it. I take a nap. <laughs> so why don't you guys come over for dinner? Um, so we we scheduled something for dinner, and I think they came over for dinner that day, and we we had the conversation and everything. They weren't surprised, you know. I think. Uh, um, I know there's, I know there's a lot of unsuccessful stories and mine, mine was, was the success story where the parents already knew yeah. pretty much or had, had an idea, uh, I think, cause we were living together. Uh, so that was, that's my story. Of yeah, coming that's, out process. that's great. That's great. It's a big relief, right? When you yeah. remember that, I still yeah. remember sending that letter to my dad and the great response I got too. And I think you and I are both really lucky in that regard. Yeah, but but you've had a really great career uh, flying for Kaiser Air. You're a pilot flying all over the place. What got you into flying? Yeah, so my um, my grandfather was a Navy pilot. He flew in the Navy Reserves just after the war. Uh, as uh, like I like I mentioned, my mom was born in Southern California. He was living down there with the family, flying out of uh, Los Alamitos, mm -hmm. um, and he had the, he had the good fortune of flying all the old old school warbirds after the war, propeller warbirds all over the uh, uh, country, ferrying them, ferrying them everywhere. Uh, and as he grew up, he, you know, as he retired from the reserves, he got married and they uh, ended up buying his own airplane, starting his own business. So he had several airplanes that he owned throughout his life. Um, and when I was born, he had his own airplane. Um, and so I, I remember taking my first airplane ride when I was about two years old. And he stacked oh, wow. All the, he stacked a bunch of phone books and pillows on the seat so that I could actually see out the window. Um, and I, re I remember just being hooked ever since. So that that was what I wanted to do from the from day one. 
So uh, that never that love of flying, you, you hear it in a lot of flying stories. Pilots talk about it. Mm-hmm. Is once you once you get the flying bug, you don't you don't lose it. It's kind of a it's a passion. Uh, it's a lot of work. But it's part of your it's blood. Passion. Yeah, it's it's so it's in you. So Kaiser Air is a, a private company. You fly all kinds of different folks all over the U.S. Who's the most famous person you've ever flown? Oh, the famous person. The most, I, I got to say, the most famous person I've flown in recent history, uh, you know, I have, I have a good fortune of flying a lot of bands and a lot of uh, sports teams, but I think uh, one of the most um, exciting ones was the Joe Biden campaign that I flew um, for our current president. Uh, that was a lot of fun, being able to, being able to fly the uh, majority of his trips for the campaign out of the East Coast. And go to all the battleground states, and you kind of got to see the the behind the scenes workings of a presidential campaign. Uh, you know, regardless of your political affiliation, it's it's kind of interesting just to sure. see the gravity of a campaign and the strategy and the lengths that they go through, especially coming out of COVID, because um, that remember that was right on the tail end of COVID, and everybody was was very very gun shy, and you had to be really masked up and tested and a litany of things that you had to do. Um, so it was a good, it was, an, it was a neat experience. I liked it. Yeah. It well, I remember, I remember distinctly uh, the day you got the phone call about that because you guys were over uh, visiting us and I thought, man, that's going to be just, that's going to be an experience of a lifetime. Yeah. And that, that lasted a couple months and I had the good fortune of going back and uh, being able to uh, be invited back when uh, Donald Trump's campaign didn't send the, the, uh, United States airplanes, as you know, customarily they send the United States airplanes up there to move him in and, and bring him to Andrews Air Force Base for his first day, and he didn't send them. Uh, so they called on us, our company, and we went back and were able to fly into Andrews Air Force Base, <laughs> uh, which was cool. It was nice. It was fun. I didn't. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Well, that's a whole other show. Yeah. So let's talk about this AIDS ride. Um, and I want to talk first about the AIDS crisis and what you remember about it. I remember sure. for me, I was um, just graduating high school the day that the CDC announced this strange disease that, has, that was killing gay men. Um, and I remember being terrified about it. What were your first recollections of AIDS? Yeah, so my, my first recollection, you know, you, if you've got to put it in the, in the lens of I think I think the generation and and um, not to say that you're you're significantly you're not significantly older than me, but you're you're older than me. So I, I you know I grew up I grew up in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would you know I was born in my my class was basically seven born in seventy nine or eighty, and so as we grew up, um, growing up in the nineteen eighties, I guess you could say um, there wasn't we weren't old enough to really understand it. Um, sure. I, and I remember, I remember taking the very first uh, sex education classes or life health, whatever it's called, uh, whatever it's called these days. Uh, and HIV and AIDS was only brought up in the context of a sexually transmitted disease, um, and that there was no cure for it. That's that's mm-hmm. pretty much all you knew. Um, and it was more, it's presented more as a scare tactic um, for teen, you know, teenager and adolescents. Um, in, in, like I said, in the context of a sexually transmitted disease and a life sentence. So I don't think it really, it didn't really come about until uh, probably high school, later middle school, early high school, 
Well, and so if I do the math right, you were in high school in around 95, 96. Is that right? Uh, correct. Started in 94. Yeah. So 95 was the big year when the cocktail really turned the tables on the on the disease and people began to survive it from it. Um, right. But that, that whole time you were growing up, of course, people were dying uncontrollably because there was no... There was no cure mm-hmm. for it. Well, not a, sure. not that there's a cure today, but there was no treatment for it, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and it, I can remember just the sheer terror of that. But someone growing up in the time that you did, it was also something that schools didn't talk about. And I imagine for you, it must have been scary as yeah. well. Yeah, you know, and you, you hear about, and that's what we did hear about. We, you know, you started to hear about... Um, those with those with HIV and AIDS, and like you said, the the cocktail at the time. I think 1986 is when um, uh, remember the AAZT came out in mm-hmm. 1986, mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that we you know over the years through the 90s it started to change. Uh, you know, research developed. People started putting more money into it and paying attention to it more, and the effect it had on uh, uh, research and treatment for it uh, started to turn the tables, like you said. Um, and now we're up to present day, present day, where a lot of those treatments are down to a lot less number of pills. All this research uh, doesn't come without a price. Um, you, you've got to pay for it somehow. Somebody's got to pay for it. And uh, like we know, a lot of that gets passed on to the consumer. And um, that prevents a lot of treatment in a lot of areas. You're absolutely right about that. So let's talk about the AIDS ride. How did you first hear about it? Okay. Uh, I first I first heard about it uh, years ago. I had some friends that had done it, and I I didn't really think much of it because I wasn't that much into cycling. Um, I you know I cycled in high school quite a bit, uh, not not as far as road cycling goes, but I had, I had a bike. That's how I got around. I I rode from um, you know swim practice, high school, back to the, back to work, back to high school. I was all over the map and that, and that's, I didn't even care about a car. I just rode my bike, rain, rain, sleet or snow. Uh, that's was my, that was my mode of transportation. So biking was always something I enjoyed doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until, uh, the pandemic that I decided, you know, the gyms were closed. I needed, I needed an act, outdoor activity to do. So what I did was go out and I bought a road bike, uh, for my birthday and I started to get my, uh, uh, get into biking quite a bit and started, you know, once or twice a week, three times a week, four times a week. And next thing you know, throughout the year, I put on 2,500 miles on my road oh, bike wow. the first year. And you look back at the, you know, nowadays with apps and everything, you look back at your, your training apps and you go, wow, I rode, I rode quite a bit. Um, and then it wasn't until uh, I think last year that I was looking through my email and I had an email from a buddy of mine that was doing the AIDS life cycle ride and he was looking for donations and the picture he took was on the hill and in the background is my house. <laughs> oh, really? And I, and I said, and I, and I called him up and I and I said, Hey, you didn't tell me you were doing this ride. And I said, you're in my neighborhood. That would have been awesome. I've been riding for the last two years. Um, I would have, I would have liked to do that. So he started, we got together, we went for a ride together and he started telling me all about it. It happened to be too late for me to join that year. Um, but uh, they encouraged me to join the following year um, amongst some other people. So I decided this last year, it's something I've always wanted to do. And uh, I pulled the trigger one night, signed up, and here I am. Okay. Well, from everything I've read about it, it sounds absolutely grueling. 
I mean, you're, oh, yeah. you're, you're, you're going and, and I've talked to a few people who have done it and, and it is grueling, but obviously it's a, a personal challenge for you, but tell us for those people who don't know where the ride is and how long it is and why it's grueling, where does it start? Where does it end? Yeah. Uh, so it's a, it's a 545 mile ride, uh, over the course of seven days. It begins on a Saturday from the Cow Palace in San Francisco ends in, uh, Los Angeles. So basically what you do is you pack a bag and in the bag, you've got seven mini bags, one, one with a, a riding outfit for each day, a sleeping bag and your toiletries. And that bag gets transported to each location where you're going. Um, so you don't have to carry the bag on the bike. Uh, and then when you ride, you ride your bike, uh, each day, the longest day is about a hundred, hundred miles or so. So I think that's going to be the most grueling day. And, and uh, all the other days can be anywhere from 40 to 80 miles or so per day. Hmm. So when you do the math, you're, you know, you're riding an average of 15, depending on how fast you ride, 15 to 20 miles an hour, you're going to be on the bike for four or five hours, some of those days. Um, and when you arrive at the, when you ride at the stop and your bag is there, you have, they provide a tent for you. Uh, and it kind of creates a uh, tent city for about 2,500 to 3,000 people for the night. Uh, they feed you. Uh, you have, there's hot showers, there's everything available to you and, uh, you start up and, uh, rinse and repeat for the morning, get breakfast, get on the bike and start again. Hmm. So you had me up until the tent. I thought, okay, this sounds like it could be pretty good. But, but at the end of the day, after riding, would you say four to five hours, maybe a hundred miles a day, I want a big, thick mattress. <laughs> I want a yeah, nice pillow. I, I don't want a tent. Yeah. I, well, and I've done, you know, I was a boy scout, so I did, I did 50 mile backpacking trips and that part doesn't bother. That's the least of my worries of this whole trip. I, the sleeping quarters don't bother me at all. I think, I think I could, I could reach beyond that. I'm excited about, you know, a good shower is going to feel good at the end of the day. Something hot, you know, get yourself warm again. And, um, so I know you're going to burn a lot of calories, so we're going to be eating a lot. Um, so I look, I look forward to that part. Now, when exactly does this take place? Cause it's June, right? June, June 4th. Yeah. June 4th. We start June 4th. Yeah. Okay. So hopefully this you'll is... have some decent weather. It certainly won't be as cold as it is right now. Yeah. I think the coldest, the coldest it'll be is probably riding out of San Francisco as it typically is, you know, yeah. Saturday morning, sometimes in the summer fog. Yeah. Uh, but it should warm up as you go South. It should warm up. So what are you looking forward to most about it as you, I mean, you've talked to some people who have done it, but you know, the route now you're preparing for it. What are you looking forward to most? I think, uh, looking forward to meeting people, you know, you can, you can do it several ways. You can join, it's kind of what you want to make the most of it. Um, you can join groups. There's, there's themed groups, there's writing groups, um, from around the area, uh, there's all the all the way across the country. People form different mm. different groups to ride with, and there's support groups for not only the ride, but there's support groups for uh, fundraising uh, as a collective. Um, they and they do fun things. You know, they they get uh, matching jerseys. They do co- um, uh, different themed costumes or what what have you. So they have fun with it. But I'm mostly looking to 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 meet people. Um, uh, and form some good relationships and probably learn something, you know, it's a, it's a good chance to, like you said, you know, do a fitness goal while doing something that's worthwhile and meaningful, um, and raising money for a good cause. 
Yeah, so this is a fundraiser. Um, Correct. Individuals, or you, as you mentioned, and or groups get together and set some goals and try to raise some money. Do you have any idea how much money they typically raise a year? Yeah, I want to say it's uh, it, it's in the uh, realm of uh, around seventeen million dollars. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, seventeen to twenty million dollars. Yeah, incredible. Uh, and it, it, there's some really incredible fundraisers on there. Um, it's my my personal fundraising goal. I had originally set. Uh, for about thirty-five hundred dollars. Thirty-five hundred dollars is the minimum. What they call the minimum ticket to minimum to earn a ticket to ride. So you're required to to fundraise that minimum amount, and then you can set a goal above that if you want. So not knowing how I was going to do, I set I set a personal goal of five thousand bucks, um, and I'm already I'm already just about there. I'm about thirty-five hundred dollars right now, uh, about seventy percent of the way there. Well, let's see if we get some people excited tonight on the air to to help you with that. Uh, when you look at the trip, what intimidates you most about it? I want to, I want to say the most intimidating part is probably the longest day. Um, and, and not, not necessarily the longest day alone, but, uh, by itself, what I mean, but the longest day, because you're doing back to back riding. So the, the first day, for instance, is about 80 miles. You spend the night and then you get on the bike again and you do another hundred. You spend the night and you do another 60 and you spend the night and you do another, you know, and it goes on, it goes on like that for, for seven days. So, uh, the back to back riding, uh, I think is the most intimidating part of it. Cause you've got to, you got to train your backside to sit on that seat for four or five hours a day <laughs> and do it again the next day, even though it's probably going to be sore. Yeah. If that, if that can put that into perspective for you. Did you invest in a nicely padded seat? I, I've got a decent seat. You know, you also got a bike fit, you know, all kidding aside, a bike fit is really important. I never knew the, you know, the importance of a bike fit, but they, you know, you can go to a specialist and they fit you so that you sit on your, um, sit bones and they, uh, adjust your pedals and your, um, uh, your steering height and everything else and your reach on your mm -hmm. bike so that you're comfortable and it takes the pressure off your joints and your knees go correctly. Um, and they teach you how to stretch and they teach you how to do a lot of things and, the education of it is is important too, so you know how to treat your body and not hurt yourself. Uh, but yeah, I think the the back to back part is the, the intimidating part because you got to train yourself to to numb up to it. <laughs> <laughs> so how are you training for it? What are you doing? I mean, obviously you're riding a lot, but yeah, I I, I ride three four times a week, um, sometimes by myself depending on depending on my work schedule. But they also provide it's a very well organized um, uh, organization. They provide local uh, training rides mm -hmm. where I do uh, I do a training there's probably two or three training rides a week for various groups some up in Marin some in the East Bay some out of San Francisco and I know there's a few in the South Bay uh, and they're all it's all organized on calendars you can, they're welcoming you can join pretty much any training ride um, and they gradually increase the uh, the length of the rides and the frequency of the rides up until uh, June so that you kind of build up to it and, and everybody gets a chance and the rides are good because they're, they're not only uh, training rides as far as physically training to ride the bike, but they're also educational rides for um, the safety rules. You know, they, they're, they're big promote, um, one of big, big promoter of uh, safety while you're riding, make sure you follow the rules and use hand signals and call out and uh, you know, not doing anything funky with your handlebars and, uh, you know, it's important to have an organized ride that promotes safety to that degree. Uh, and everything I've seen so far is, is everything looks, looks great. It's well-organized. It's safe. 
Um, and I really appreciate that. Yeah, well, with 3,000 people writing, they'd have to have their acts together mm-hmm. for that. Sure. So you mentioned your personal fundraising goal is 5,000 bucks, yeah? Uh, yeah. So if listeners want to help sponsor you, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, that'd be, that'd be awesome. They can, uh, they can go to AIDSLifeCycle.org uh, and they can click in the upper right-hand corner. Uh, there's a, a donate button and you can actually search for my name, uh, John Rosa, and my uh, page will come up. Uh, but for that matter, you can, you can search for any cyclist that's participating um, and donate. It's all part of a collective effort. Uh, but anything, anything, uh, anyone wants to donate for my, uh, for my ride, I'll be uh, very appreciative of it. Well, we'll put a link to your specific page on our website at outbeatnews.com. You can just go to the top, click show notes at the top of the page, and go check out the AIDS life cycle ride. Are you going to be doing any posting on social media over the will, course of this got, ride? Yeah, um, I do do, uh, I, I'm on the Instagram train and uh, Facebook. Uh, so I, I plan on posting as long as I'm still trying to figure out the power, the power issues with phone and everything else as you're going down. Cause now you've got to charge devices. Uh, but I think I've got it figured it out. So I'm planning on, uh, I'll document on Instagram uh, updates. And if people have uh, Strava, I'm also on Strava, which is a, a fitness app, cycling app, um, which will have my, uh, actually tracks my uh, progress for the ride. So that'll, that'll take my track for every ride. Oh, good. Okay. So if you can send me the link to that, we'll get that posted as well. Sure. If you yeah, have that. I'd like to. Um, and we'll put your Instagram on that same uh, link on our page as well so people can follow you there. That's going to be pretty exciting. Yeah. yeah, that'd be great. I appreciate it. Very good. Well, we've been talking with John Rosa, who is a pilot with Kaiser Air, a good personal friend of mine, and on his first voyage in this year's AIDS life cycle ride coming up on June 4th. John, thanks for being with us, and best of luck on that ride. Stay safe and have a good time. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's great. And that's our show. Tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. Of course, that's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio. In the meantime, do have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. You're broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. You can't find a fighter But I see it in you So we gon' walk it out Move mountains We gon' walk it out And move mountains And I'll rise up I'll rise like Support for Outbeat Radio on KRCBFM comes from listeners and from Rocky, the free-range chicken, and Rosie, the original organic chicken. Air-chilled, non-GMO, locally raised right here in Sonoma County with no antibiotics ever. More information is available at rockyandrosie.com. You're listening to 104.9 KRCBFM Roanoke Park and KRCGFM Windsor, Sonoma County's NPR station. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Beale Street Caravan is next.